Imagery with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to episode number 159 of the Robots Podcast. My name is Jana and in this episode we will hear from Professor Carol Miller who will be speaking about robotics and surgery. But first, as always, let's take a look at what's been happening in robotics with Christine. Thank you, Jana. Of 215 million industry sector workers in the EU, 40% are reported to suffer from muscle-related disorders. This is because their jobs often involve spending long periods of time bending and crouching, which can leave staff with substantial back and knee problems. From the NCCR Robotics Lab at ETH Zurich, Switzerland, the business startup Nuni aims to address the significant social issue that previous solutions have not dealt with successfully. The solution is called the chairless chair, which is an exoskeleton for the legs with a belt to attach it to the hips and straps that wrap around the thighs. The user can move freely, but when the wearer is in a position they wish to stay in for a long time, this position can be fixed, meaning that the wearer does not need to use the same muscle groups for long periods of time to hold the position. This technology offers a promising preventive measure for tasks involving non-optimal body postures or repetitive movements. The 2014 FIFA World Cup Brazil made history when a 29-year-old paraplegic man named Juliano Pinto set out to kick a soccer ball with the aid of a robotic exoskeleton at the World Cup's opening ceremonies in Sao Paulo. The exoskeleton was created with the help of over 150 researchers led by neuroscientist Dr. Miguel Nicolelis of Duke University. The researchers worked together as part of a collaboration among several universities called the Walk Again Project. Juliano Pinto controlled the exoskeleton with an EEG cap placed over his head. The sensors on the cap read brain activity from his scalp. The cap then deciphered his intentions and transmitted the instructions to the exoskeleton, which produces the gait movement using a set of hydraulic actuators. With the exoskeleton, Pinto successfully kicked the ball with Walk Again Project scientists proudly standing by him inside the Corinthians arena. In celebration of the exoskeleton's groundbreaking moment, Dr. Miguel Nicolelis tweeted, We did it! For more information on robotic startups and the World Cup's kickoff, visit robohub.org. Professor Carol Miller currently works at the University of Western Australia in Perth. Most of his work focuses on computational biomechanics for medicine. More specifically, he's been conducting research into mathematical models of soft tissue brain, liver, and so on, which it is hoped will be of use during robot-assisted surgery, where accurate feedback is required and conventional imaging techniques often introduce significant delay. Our interviewer, Ron, spoke to Professor Miller about the future of robotics in medicine and some of his exciting new research projects. 
Good morning or good afternoon, depending on when the podcast is viewed. I am Carol Miller. I am a winter professor of flight mechanics at the University of Western Australia and also a distinguished professor at Cardiff University in Wales. I direct intelligence systems for medicine laboratory at the University of Western Australia, which has a mission to improve clinical outcomes through appropriate use and development of technology. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Miller. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak to us about robotics and surgery. First of all, can I get you to paint a picture of how robotics can be applied to surgery? Uh, I I think it is important to view medical robotics as a subset or a component of a bigger thing that we could call computer-integrated surgery or computer-aided surgery or computer-assisted surgery. There's no accepted term yet, but uh, it is clear that CIS systems in the future will have similar impact on medicine as computer-aided design and computer-aided manufacturing systems have had on engineering. It is expected that by the year 2030, the market for scientific computations feeding computer-integrated surgery systems will be larger in medicine, this market will be larger in medicine than it is now in engineering. So it is a very dynamic area of research and robotics itself is just a small part, small part of it. So in this case, robotics is just another instrument in the doctor's tool set. Exactly. So if we consider the progress of medicine in the last 50 years, in my opinion, the majority of the progress has been due to improved diagnostics. And this was due mostly to engineers and physicists who built uh, magnetic resonance imaging scanners, uh, developed computer tomography, and many, many other diagnostic tools, but especially imaging tools. These imaging tools allow much more precise application of therapy. It is actually uh, suggested that the main principle of 21st century medicine will be the accurate localization of the lesion or pathology and application of the treatment exactly in the area of the pathology and not to the entire patient. So imaging and then ability to deliver treatment to the identified location will be the key. And of course, the delivery to that identified area of pathology can be done by a machine. I am a bit reluctant to call the machine a robot because it is, in my view, unlikely that these machines will be endowed with a degree of autonomy and decision-making capabilities. I think the intelligence will stay with a medical professional. It's the precise execution that will be done by the machine, as is actually the case with the Da Vinci robot now, which is, strictly speaking, not really a robot. It's a copying manipulator that translates movements and decisions of a surgeon to patients. The da Vinci machine, through human input, is able to make more precise movements in surgery. Are there any other devices that are capable of taking it further? The technology is available to make machines that would operate more reliably than human surgeons in a number of procedures. However, there are cultural or social obstacles for these machines to actually be employed clinically. I'll give you an example of a Minerva robot from uh, Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. Uh, This was an image-guided robot, a prototype, created in uh, 1993, which is already 21 
years ago. So it was an image-guided robot to conduct biopsies of the brain. It would acquire brain CT scans. Based on these scans, locate the lesion, usually the cyst from which the robot was supposed to suck out the fluid, design the trajectory based on these images, drill the skull, insert the needle, suck out the fluid, and retract. This machine was built and demonstrated in a clinical trial to perform far superior manner to, to human uh, surgeons. It has never been used again. For, there is no technological issues here. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the psychology or social aspects. It is believed that patients do not want machines to operate on them. There is no confirmation, essentially, that the assumption and it is uh, known for sure that uh, medical professionals are very reluctant to have any decision-making taken uh, of them by machinery or computers. So what is the level of precision of accuracy in surgery? Let us reflect for a second that uh, precision and accuracy in, in medicine or in uh, surgical interventions is at least two orders of magnitude lower than in standard mechanical engineering. So it's accuracy of neurosurgery is considered to be about one millimeter. So one millimeter accuracy on 25 centimeter long object, imagine making a one millimeter error on a, say 20 meter long gas turbine. Yeah, exactly. The reality is that accuracy requirements in most surgical interventions are much less stringent than in standard engineering. So Dr. Miller... What is your team working on in collaboration with your US partners in robotics and surgery? My intelligence systems for a medicine laboratory is really interested in bringing scientific computations to the clinic. So we create patient-specific computational models, which means models of people who come through the door or who come to the clinic with serious problems that the two diseases we are really concentrating on now are brain cancer and abdominal aortic aneurysms. So I'll talk briefly about these two areas. So in certain types of brain cancer produce tumors that are impossible to distinguish from the healthy tissue by an naked eye. However, they can clearly identify it on magnetic resonance imaging. So these tumors can be delineated precisely on so-called pre-procedural diagnostic magnetic resonance images. But the problem is that as soon as the skull is open during the operation, the brain moves. It's called a brain shift. And now we don't know where the tumor is. So our approach is to use sophisticated computational models of the brain to compute the deformation fields within the brain and predict the intraoperative position of the pathology, usually a tumor, and critical healthy areas. And then this data is presented visually to a surgeon in the operating theater to aid neural navigation. We have uh, proved in our recent publication in Journal of Neurosurgery that our method would benefit at least 25% of sufferers with a probability of 98%. So to rephrase it, there is a 98% probability that at least 25% of patients would benefit. And this was an effort that has taken us uh, something like 15 years 
of work with uh, our collaborators from Harvard Medical School. I would say 15 years and uh, maybe 20 million in research funding to get to this stage. So now we are able to create a computational model that would predict the formations of the brain during surgery in real time in the operating theater to inform neural navigation. And the second area, very, very interesting and a little bit new for us, it's only the second year we have been working in this area, is the computer-aided diagnosis of abdominal aortic aneurysms. So abdominal aortic aneurysms are sacs or balloons with blood that uh, grow out of the aorta and they do not present symptoms until they break and if they break, people die. Three men per day die in Australia from a AAA rupture. Some people get diagnosed accidentally because imaging is conducted on them for some other reasons. So now, how to decide whether such an aneurysm is at the risk of uh, rupture and therefore immediately intervention and a very substantial operation should be performed to avert this risk? Or perhaps the situation is uh, of very low risk and it's much better to do nothing rather than commit resources as well as introduce the risk of complications by conducting serious surgical intervention. Current clinical guidelines are not based on scientific basis. It's simply a diameter of the aneurysms that decides. We believe that engineering approaches, treating the aneurysm in first approximation as a pressure vessel, can bring much more detailed insight into the risk because mechanical engineers have been computing the stresses in walls of pressure vessels for 100 years. So very clearly, if we can show that the stress is high, it is highly probable that also the risk is high. So going back to what you said before, once the model is constructed from the scans, how is the information presented to the surgeon? A 3D model? Yes, yes. The three-dimensional rendering and beautiful, colorful pictures have been sorted out. So we have tools uh, in place that take patient CTs, that detect in the detailed geometry of the vasculature, including, of course, the area of interest, which is the the aorta with the aneurysm. Mm -hmm. And this is then rendered and and produced and displayed as beautiful three-dimensional pictures. And then the computations are conducted in the background, and computed stresses are then overlaid in different colors on the same picture, so anyone can immediately see if something gets dark red into the purple, it's high stress, it's uh, probably high risk. If everything is blue and sort of greenish, then it looks like the stress is distributed evenly and the, the stresses are low, probably the risk is low. But... I I must stress that there is so far no statistical evidence that high stress correlates with high risk. It is common sense for us, but we need to conduct about 300 patient-specific cases to produce statistical evidence that would be accepted by medical community. Medical community, essentially, as a matter of principle, does not accept uh, logical argumentation if it is not supported by epidemiological studies and statistical evidence. So essentially, they say, if you tell me something and show me results on three examples, you are making unsubstantiated claims. If you say the same and show me statistics on 150 cases, I'm 
beginning to listen to you. So it's a hard sell. Oh yeah, everything needs um, statistical evidence. Even though in engineering the analytical argument would uh, be sufficient, an analytical argument is just the beginning in the the field of medicine. Hopping back to the possibility of autonomous surgical robotics, can you see a role in surgical procedures? I think uh, if we separate for a second mentally the diagnosis and clinical decision-making from execution of the procedure, it is absolutely likely, I would say even certain, that actual execution of procedures can be done more effectively and safely by machines than by humans. However, it appears that Intellectual processes and decisions that involve responsibility have to be left in the heads of the medical professionals. I'm not saying that it is not possible to to create a machine that would be actually better than a human in making these decisions in certain cases. As the Minerva project in Switzerland showed already 21 years ago, I am saying that it appears that there is no social acceptance of machines uh, taking such decisions. And of course, the Vinci robot is a perfect example of this, when essentially all decisions are made by the surgeon, and the robot simply copies what the surgeon wants to do, or scales down, and and executes the, the procedures obviously more precisely than a human would be able to. So, if we consider that it is probably now accepted that the fundamental principle of the 21st century medicine will be precise localization of the pathology or lesion and then applying the treatment exactly to the area of the pathology and not to the entire organism. It is obvious that imaging and other diagnostic tools will be extremely important in localizing the target, but then other machinery let's call them robots, but robots without autonomy and decision-making powers will be obviously best suited to execute precise procedures exactly in the area of the localized target. So this is what I think will happen. This is how I think computer-integrated surgery systems will, will look like. There will be a lot of scientific computation that is almost absent from the clinic now, These scientific computations will inform the surgeon and provide data to the machinery. And the surgeon will be making uh, decisions on diagnostics and on the treatment and execution of the treatment. But the actual application of the treatment in the precise area of the pathology will be done by, by a machine, by a stupid machine. Stupid, but precise and reliable. And I also hear that there is another robotics project that you're currently working on. Oh, yes. We, are, we have a project on transformers. That is an absolutely amazing project that was suggested by one of my extremely talented students. So everybody watch transformer movies, or at least the commercials. Imagine that you really wanted this to happen. Imagine that you would like to build a machine that can completely change its morphology because of the demand of a new task it is presented with. We are working on uh, mathematical frameworks which are really, really extremely advanced using the most uh, current development in algebra and topology to actually create tools to describe how the machine, which in this case is a number of links and number of joints, can reassemble itself 
in order to accomplish a task that is not possible to be accomplished by the original morphology. We are calling it reassembling robotics, and this is a really, really fascinating field, but difficult. But at this stage, you don't actually have a task for it as yet. I mean, we are pioneers in this, right? Yeah. So, so of course, uh, there are mostly holes, and in places there are bits and pieces, right? Yeah. First of all, we we don't have any means of realizing the transformation. Mm-hmm. Okay, but we are hoping that somebody smart in mechanical design area will come up with, uh, sooner or later, with some smart ways of actually executing, for example, switching of joints from prismatic to revolute, like one link here, revolute joint, another link, prismatic, and if the math says, okay, it would be better for this task to switch them, that actually somebody will come up with the idea how to actually execute this. Mm-hmm. Now, the definition of the task we currently limit ourselves in our mathematical investigations to, to the workspace volume or the essentially the ability to reach something. Okay? So, so imagine a, a simple manipulator with three links. It cannot reach a certain target, but the task requires the robot to reach the target. So now this is the objective that needs to be attained by reassembling the robot from the same bits and pieces so that it actually accomplishes the task. Mm-hmm. So... So this is a really common in robotics. First, you paint a picture that is like 25th century or, or worse, and then you limit yourself for a time being to the workspace, right? Just the workspace. Oh yes, I am very, very enthusiastic about this, and we we'll see how it goes. Well, on behalf of the podcast and our listeners, I'd like to once again thank you for taking the time to speak to us about robotics and surgery And we look forward to hearing about your future developments. Very good. Thank you. And that's all for today. You can find plenty more information about this and all our past episodes on our website at robotspodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Surgery with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.